Explore the new AFIF AHA guideline and key highlights for supporting and guiding your severe symptomatic aortic stenosis patients at heartvalve.com. This message is brought to you by Edward Fleifeinfuss. Connect with us at heartvalve.com. You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. This month, Roxana Mehran talks about hypertension in women with Nisha Parikh, Carl Pepin, and Noelle Barry Maris. Hello, it's Roxana Moran from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and welcome to Rock's Heart Radio and today's program, which I'm so, so thrilled about. Today's program being focused on uh, hypertension in women, but throughout the span of her life. We have an incredible guest here today, Dr. Nisha Parif from UCSF, Associate Professor of Medicine at UCSF with a lot of expertise in the arena. Dr. Noel Barry Mertz, who's the uh, director of the Barbara Streisand Women Hearts uh, Center at Cedars-Sinai and professor of medicine at Cedars-Sinai. And Dr. Carl Pupin, who's professor of medicine at uh, University of Florida. Welcome everyone. I'm really, really thrilled about our conversation today. It's our pleasure. Pleased to be here. With great you. to be here. It's so good to have you guys. I'm so excited and I don't know where to start. So let's start about hypertension and pregnancy. Nisha, I know you're doing a huge amount of uh, work on this. And I loved when I read your profile about the span of the life of a woman. And uh, you just saw the Lancet Commission. Um, Noelle is one of the um, lead um, senior uh, commissioners on the on that commission in the Lancet. And one of the things we put out there is the lowest hanging fruit, hypertension, and the span of the life of a woman, not when she's osteoporotic and old and postmenopausal, but rather at the inception, even when, you know, in utero. So do you want to expand about what it is? And what, what do you mean when you say that the span of life of a uh, uh, you know, treatment of hypertension or evaluation for it through the uh, lifespan of a woman. Sure. I mean, I think you touched on um, on on some aspects of that. I, I think that the life course certainly begins in utero, uh, but for a woman, there's also some key points which I think have been relatively underappreciated. And one is is really the childbearing years and pregnancy. So preconception, throughout pregnancy, and postpartum. Um, and I think traditionally we've approached treating hypertension in women, um, when she sees us in her middle-aged years. Um, and I think slowly we, as a cardiology community are starting to look earlier and earlier in a woman's life course to see where we can modify risk and pregnancy is really a powerful window into, uh, determining whether a woman's at risk for high blood pressure, for instance, pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia put a woman at threefold risk of developing hypertension um, later on. And 20% of women with preeclampsia will develop hypertension 15 years after that diagnosis. So, so we were able to capture women if we understand her pregnancy history. Other pregnancy factors such as pregnancy loss, preterm delivery, and delivering a small for gestational age baby also put a woman at risk for high blood pressure. And then there's also some evidence that gestational diabetes might predict hypertension. So these are powerful factors. And I think if we have knowledge of pregnancy factors in women, we'll be able to use that knowledge to more aggressively monitor her 
postpartum, maybe even empower her with uh, ambulatory cuff, um, you know, uh, that type of thing. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's, it's really a great, great background that you're giving us. uh, And thank you for that. So um, Carl, you've been um, at this a little bit longer than maybe a couple of years long, longer than us, um, than us ladies here uh, on this, on this podcast. But uh, what are your thoughts? Um, What, you know, you've been um, a champion for a lot of this uh, for a very, very long time. Why haven't we made progress? Uh, Why are we, why are we missing out here for treating hypertension in women? I'm not, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Roxana, but let me just add to, um, to the earlier comments. It, it, it actually uh, starts with women before they're in utero. There's strong evidence that ART now uh, is associated with hypertension, not only in the mother, but also in her offspring. Uh, and uh there's, there's some data from Scandinavian databases that, um, that this is turning out to be an important thing. Somehow the angiotensin renin system is modified by some of the ARTs. Um, and uh, the other problem that we have now, we tried to do an ART registry um, to try to track down these uh these children who were born, uh, it's not possible because mothers don't pass that information on to their offspring. Mm. So uh, this is an extremely difficult problem um, if we're going to start as, as you did uh, in utero, if you're going to start you know, at the beginning. Relative to, um, to Roxana's question, you know, where are we and why, have we, why are we behind the eight ball here? Well, one problem is um, we have defaulted blood pressure to the lowest member of our health care team. Uh, I have um, personally, uh, when I go to some of the physicians that I see, I've had my blood pressure taken when I'm standing in a hallway with an oximetry probe on my finger um, and a thermometer in my mouth. Um, and um, my colleagues tell me that that is not uncommon for many of the women's uh, checkups also. Um, so, 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 and it even gets worse than that. I'm not even sure blood pressure is the right metric um, to measure the disorder of hypertension. Um, there's, uh, there's increasing evidence in a paper that we have currently in uh, JAMA Network, along with many others that show it's the variability in blood pressure measurement that's actually a much better predictor of outcome, particularly mortality, all-cause mortality. So we're, we're really behind the eight ball here. Yeah, uh, so a lot, a lot of work to do. Noel, um, what are you doing over there at Cedars to to handle this problem and what what do you what do you think is the way forward? Well, you know, our group headed most recently by Dr. Susan Chang demonstrated that the thresholds for increasing risk um, actually start quite early in women. Uh, that the thresholds for risk. Um, are, uh, you know, probably 20 points lower than the thresholds for risk for men. 
And it doesn't start after the menopause. It starts before the menopause. So while women are actively cycling and having children, and we haven't completely teased out the relationship to pregnancy yet, um, but there's good data about treatment that uh, similar large uh, trial analyses, meta-analyses, uh, demonstrate that there's benefit at lower uh, treatment thresholds for women. Um, and, and the sprint trial addresses elderly women. So I think you know what you're hearing is a lot of new thoughts. Like now that we have Epic, we should be able to track who had ART and who had preeclampsia or other adverse pregnancy outcomes or other forms of electronic health records. We should be commissioning female-only hypertension trials. We should. Yeah. And, and we should be talking about what are best practices. Again, um, remember our wonderful colleague, uh, sadly passed before his time, uh, Ron Victor in the barbershop, a randomized controlled trial. And, you know, if you have pharmacists and barbers directing things, you actually get great outcomes. Yeah, no. So I think, yeah, we have to get out of the box here and, and go after. I don't know. I'm not sure you're going to find women in barbershops, but I think you're right. Nail salons. Nail salons. I like that. Nail salons. We're both Californians, so a lot, lot of, lot of nails going on. <laughs> I mean, I think churches, community yeah. centers, yeah. places frequented yeah. by women, which is what we wrote in the Lancet Commission, that we absolutely, absolutely. Must, must go there. We must go and meet women where they are and not expect them in their yeah. schedule to come and get their care. But why, what, 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 you know, the biggest, the biggest bang for our buck is um, getting after the low, the, the, the low socioeconomic status patients, the black patients, the African, uh, the African-American, the Hispanic, the, um, you know, uh, the cultural diversity that, you know, we need to get our arms around and, Yet we're not really, um, we're not doing that. We're not getting to that population that is absolutely a major need for this. How do we change that? Nisha, what are you doing? Um, are, you, are you reaching out to, um, to places outside of, San, or close in San Francisco itself? I mean, I, we've seen yeah, a lot of I mean, people shelter. I think you, you make a great point. I, I mean, I certainly have a diverse swath of patients in my clinical practice. And I think that just, you know, I, I really like what you said, meeting patients where they are, not ex having expectations of them that are unrealistic and then understanding, trying to, you know, make that extra effort to understand their cultural context is really important. And then also just to make them feel welcome in, in the space of your clinic is really important. And I think that um, when we don't do that is when we have a lot of mistrust between patients and providers. And without that trust, they're not going to listen to anything you say, <laughs> um, any of your advice, and you're probably not going to understand how, how best to help them. So I know those are very general things, but, but, but those are basic things that I think we almost have to back up to uh, in order to create that relationship. Because I think blood pressure, it's possible to treat it. And I think we have a lot of evidence to know what kind of lifestyle factors are going to reduce blood pressure and we know how to treat it in terms of pharmacotherapy. We know how to look for secondary causes. Um, maybe we're not so good at treating stress and anxiety and, and psychosocial conditions, but maybe we could get better at that. 
Um, but my feeling is is kind of starting at the beginning and establishing trust. I think we we have to back up and do that first. Yeah, no, I I I uh, I fully agree, Carl. Um, what do what do you um, what do you think is the biggest impediment in in us? You said we're relegating the diagnosis and treatment of hypertension to the you know not the highest level of the, our healthcare uh, uh, colleagues. Uh, do you do you think we need that kind of expertise? And what do you think about what Noel said? Um, I, I, you know, you you run a lot of clinical trials, but I haven't seen you do lead any that are just women only. Um, oh, what not... do you think about that? <laughs> Tell me if I if I missed it, please correct me. So, um, well, I'm glad I have the opportunity to correct you. So. Um, of course, the the Wise uh, program, which uh, oh, the Wise all, program, you know, yes, of course, you were the biggest. You were the the the, the ninety-six. Yes, yes, and it's in it's in various uh, iterations, and yes. um, we're doing uh, as as your listeners should know. Unfortunately, uh, all clinical trials in cardiovascular disease, with the exception of. Um, the recent um, pulmonary hypertension trials under enrolled women, including SPRINT, which is the one you were talking about earlier. And, uh, and that occurs you know, in the older population, which SPRINT concentrated in uh, most of the, the, the most prevalent uh, uh, disorder, it was hypertension in the woman. And they should have they should have sampled that population, but unfortunately, they only had about 35% uh, women, even though they were shooting right. for parity. So that's a that's a big problem. Um, now I'm not sure. I mean, I we have a mobile um, system that goes into the rural areas and offers um, everything that to the women that we can do in the center. So we go to where they are, but still women are under enrolled. And we are now doing the largest, uh, what we think is the largest cardiovascular trial, except for the hormone um, replacement trials in the warrior trial where we're oh, yeah. attempting to recruit 4,000 women who have uh, INOCA, um, signs and symptoms of ischemic heart disease without mm-hmm. obstructive coronary arteries. So, um, and, and as you might suppose, hypertension is the most prevalent. Uh, risk factor in that cohort uh, also. But I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you that we need to go into the areas where these populations uh, are, are who are at high risk and under-enrolled, but our experience with a mobile system has not enhanced the enrollment of such women. They'll bring their families but they will respectively refuse. It's crazy. And it's crazy, I isn't it? I just don't understand that. Why we can't understand that. Uh, what do you think, um, maybe Noel, and then back to all, all of you, um, and then we're, we're going we're gonna to sign off, but um, the role of digital technology, how do we embrace and uh, leverage off of uh, digital technology to help us with treatment of hypertension in women? Are you incorporating that in your trials? Um, so let's start with Noel, then we'll go to Carl, and then we'll end with you, Nisha. 
Maybe we'll start. With yeah, we were funded by the California Institute. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, we had a grant from um, CIOPAM, California Institute of Precision Medicine, and we we did remote monitoring of 200 ischemic heart disease uh, participants, 60% women, um, with Fitbit, with uh, remote um, patient reported outcomes on their smartphone and remote fingertip sampling with the Mitra device for uh, the metabolome and proteome. And we were able to keep 200 patients in for 90 days and then half for an additional 90, so six months of monitoring. And we've published a number of articles um, about that uh, just in terms of its feasibility and sort of some of the things that you find that are quite, quite interesting. Um, sleep patterns, physical activity. So I think, Roxana, remote monitoring is going to play a strong role. And we see publications all the time that home blood pressure monitoring um, is actually better than in office. And hearing, you know, Carl's report, I, I understand why. We instruct them how to take their blood pressure at home and, and bring in logs. And um, uh, at Cedar sinai you can actually transmit it into EPIC. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, possibly optimistic that we can do a better job with this. Um, women are pretty good at attention to detail. And uh, I think if we tell them what needs to be done, particularly in these big states, Florida, California, New York, a lot of people don't live close to a center. Um, telemedicine is going to make a difference. Uh, we hope that it can stay. Uh, so I, I'm optimistic. Uh, Carl? So I'm optimistic also. Um, I think uh, industry is starting to recognize that women are different. Uh, I'm consulting for a company called Bloomer Tech. They make a monitoring bra that's uh, very sophisticated and can monitor just about every um, parameter that you would like to monitor in a comfortable uh, bra that women can wear and wash, et cetera. Uh, and they have other garments uh, on their drawing board. Uh, so I think that the industry is starting to move into it and we'll, we'll, we'll see more and more opportunities for a digital monitoring uh, of the woman in her own environment. And I really think that's where the money is in terms of blood pressure, detecting elevated blood pressure and managing it. I'm not particularly comfortable with the blood pressures that we get in the office. I mentioned to you some of the reasons why, um, but uh, we need to know what the blood pressure is during the daily life of the woman, particularly when she's exposed to her daily life stress. Anisha. Yeah, I too am very optimistic. I think there's um, many opportunities such as the ones that Carl and Noel both mentioned um, with, with wearables and also with the connection with the EMR. We're certainly doing that in our clinic um, with a pharmacist run hypertension program um, in conjunction with, with physicians so that you get a little bit more um, uh, interaction with a, with an individual about your blood pressure log and um I think that that combination between uh, mobile health and having some in-person encounter is, is the sweet spot. And I think that's what engages women the most kind of, you know, being able to be detail oriented with the log, but then also being able to talk to somebody because I think many women are social creatures. Um, that's the sweet spot. 
Yeah, there's no question about that. But um, I mean, I think this conversation, I think, sets forth what we have to do for the future. Um, uh, and, you know, when we identified hypertension as one of the leading causes and the most important risk factor, that if we get after that, we actually can make an impact in reducing the burden of cardiovascular disease in women. I'm most excited about treating hypertension in women throughout the span of her life. So I thank you for the work that you guys are doing um, and for your incredible dedication uh, for caring for women with cardiovascular disease. And that's something, Carl, you have done your entire career for which you have received all these awards. Noel, you've built a center that's completely um, you know, devoted to this. And Nisha, your work right now at UCSF uh, is what I'm most excited about. And hopefully we can have clinics like this around the globe, not just in high level academic medical centers. Uh, so thank you for the conversation and the frank conversation and the difficult ones that we just had today. And I hope you'll come back to the program and for us to be able to have some good follow-up. Um, thank you all. And it's Roxana Moran signing off hoping for a better future for women with hypertension.